Media at SAFM with Ashraf Garda. Exploring every media platform and industry. Only on 104 to 107. Sunday morning, so we communicate brand communications, marketing, branding, advertising, PR, all of that for the next, and maybe more, of course, for the next two hours. You can engage with me on the air by calling into 0891104207. Tweet at Ashraf Garda with a hashtag media show. Do use that hashtag media show. It's important to pick up a trend throughout the next uh, couple of hours. And option three is to SMS me 34701. 34701. Looking forward to chatting to uh, Tsepo Matseba about uh, the financial services sector, a case study in terms of how they brand communicate. But that comes up later on. But how is this? If, would you buy a book called Marketing or Selling Apartheid? How interested would you be in doing that. Well, Ron Nixon has put together a book called Selling Apartheid, South Africa's Global Propaganda War. And we thought, well, let's talk about it, how, how it was sold, so therefore how it was marketed um, at that stage to make it more palatable and acceptable to people around the world. On the line then is Ron Nixon. He's the Washington correspondent at the New York Times and also of this book called Selling uh, Apartheid. Ron, appreciate your time. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm very good indeed. Right, first, let, let me get to the why. why. Why the need to write a book called Selling Apartheid? Well, I think that there's been a, you know, a lot of things said about um, the reaction to apartheid and people participating in anti-apartheid uh, movements and, and, you know, particularly in, in Western countries. Um, the support of the ANC and other apartheid, uh, anti-apartheid groups. I, I thought that, you know, there was more to tell there. There was more of a nuanced story than simply everybody supported the anti-apartheid movement. Mm. All right. So, so and, and the title, I think, is, is well, obviously, is it, all books should have. It's, it's wonderfully catchy. But, but it, is it about that? Is it, is it, is it about actually, because we're talking on a brand communication show and I'm trying to look at it from that perspective. Is it really about that? That whatever happened in South Africa, there, were, there, was, there had to be an attempt from apartheid South Africa to make what they did acceptable to the outside world, therefore selling it, if not literally, or marketing it to make sure that the world bought into it. No, it, it literally was just that. They sold it. They sold this ideology, the way that you would sell uh, Coca-Cola or the way that you would sell, you know, uh, Nando's or something. And and the idea was to, to show to the world that, hey, you know, we're doing just fine. We have our system, blacks have theirs, everybody is happy. And so it's a classic um commercial marketing campaign uh, aided by some of the largest corporations in the world, you know, religious conservatives, and, you know, as you in the book, even some black Americans from, from, um, from this side. All right, maybe it's a good time then to, to rewind and, and give us an insight into, into how that was done and, and who did it. So tell us more. Well, you know, there was a, a number of different uh, organizations and individuals that were involved. And, and the first one was actually a black American who had lived in, in South Africa for 13 years named Max Jurgen, uh, worked for the YMCA and uh, had fought against the government. Uh, but because of an earned 
I'm ended up becoming this, you know, sort of a global spokesperson for the apartheid government. There were global corporations like, you know, auto companies, uh, soft drink companies, um, you know, there were U.S. conservative religious organizations. There were organizations that the apartheid government created globally, you know, like a, a group in, in London called the Club of Ten. That was actually one guy. Um, the apartheid government created a political party in Norway uh, that, you know, helped to sell this ideology. They hired people in Paris. They hired people in, in Bonn. Uh, you know, they had a huge presence in the U.S. by hiring marketing and public relations firms. So it was a, it, it was, you know, as I described in the book, it was a, a, a campaign that ran with military precision because, they had this this wide uh, group um, of people and organizations that helped to carry out the message. Mm. And you know, in terms of the decisions, I mean, maybe give us some some. You gave me some examples, but maybe just some insights into who made the decisions and, and how how they were set up. Of course, you did that as part of your research into the book, right? Right. Well, the decision was made early on that you know we we really. In '48, when the National Party came to power, there was an early decision that we need to represent our um, views to the world. And now, taking into consideration that 1948, the rest of the world, you know, in terms of race relations, actually looked a lot like South Africa. I mean, the U.S., um, you know, blacks here were segregated, and, uh, Britain had colonized half the world. So it didn't. They, they even then they thought that they needed to to sort of uh, present themselves to the world and what they were and who they were and what this whole ideology of apartheid was. So they, it was made by um, you know the, um, the the party itself and and. As, as one of the things that they needed to do when they first came into power. Hmm. All right. Well, what about, you know, I want to jump to the very end, which is, in terms of selling apartheid, was or, or was apartheid South Africa successful in doing that? that it's a hard question because I, I, I think, and I sort of wrestle with it in the book, because I think early on, it was, and the reason was that the rest of the world, again, looked a lot like South Africa when South Africa, when the National Party first came to power. You know, again, in 1948, uh, the United States looked a lot like South Africa, you know, uh, the apartheid South Africa, mm-hmm. in that blacks were segregated. So did you really need to sell that to a country that was very similar now, I think into the the 50s and 60s and 70s, I, I think that it was fairly successful in, in holding off any talks of sanctions because, um, you know, you look at things like Sharpeville in the 60s and Soleo in the, in the 70s, and you think, well, you know, why didn't, why weren't there sanctions imposed? Uh, in some of these countries, it's, it's largely because they were very successful in saying, "Hey, you know, these are internal disturbances. You have internal stuff the same the same way. 
uh, South African government saying this to other countries, or they're lobbyists saying this to other governments. And and so you shouldn't hold that against us because you have some of the same things. So I think that, you know, by around the 80s, going into the 80s, it was much harder to do because technology had changed. People, the communications had improved to the point where you'd get information quicker about what was happening in South Africa. A lot of South Africans by that point, um, you know, black South Africans were also in countries like the U.S. and, and the U.K. And so there's firsthand knowledge of what's going on. Interesting. The, uh, we've got a tweet from C. Piri saying, who did the cover and what was the thinking behind uh, of selling apartheid's book? It's like Coca-Cola. <laughs> it's like the Coca-Cola logo. So, well, that, uh, it's, it's very deliberate. So tell me, tell me why the Coca-Cola logo. Well, I, I think, and, you know, I'll be, be perfectly honest, I had nothing to do with the design of the, of the cover. Um, it was done by my, my publisher, Jakana Media. But the idea, idea there is, is, you know, I did come up with the title. The, the idea there is what we, we've been talking about, sort of branding and selling. And that when you, when you think of the, the, the quintessential American company that you think of when you think of selling something is Coca-Cola because they are everywhere. You know, I've been to rural villages in northern Uganda somewhere, and there's nothing around but you can get a Coca-Cola. So the idea there was that, you know, the, when you think of selling, what do you think of? Well, some may say Coke, others may talk about Apple and Samsung nowadays. Things change in Google, I don't know. But I, th- I think I get your point. Okay, we are chatting to Ron Nixon. He is uh, the Washington correspondent at the New York Times and also now of, uh, and this is topical for us, a book called Selling Apartheid. Looking at how apartheid was marketed, how the South African government, the apartheid government at the time, uh, set up, in fact, a campaign that according to him was very, very effective. But you also made the point, Ron, and, and I have to take calls, by the way, on this issue, uh, 0891104207, and if you're doing just that, stay with that very narrow theme of the selling of apartheid. I mean, it's the marketing aspect, nothing else, okay? We're not discussing whether apartheid was, 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 was in any way how it, how it harmed people and how it had an impact. We know that. I'm talking about the marketing aspect only. Uh, Ron, let, let's then, you know, in, in terms of this, you made the point earlier on that it was marketed to many countries at that time that, in effect, were practicing a form of apartheid. And, and the USA, very important, purely because of its economic cloud, uh, you know, in terms of segregation, even in the 60s, they, they, they practiced that officially. So, that, right. that, did that right. make it easier then, to market to those countries? Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it, it made it easier because, you know, you look at some of the memos from American government officials during that time, and they were very sympathetic uh, in a lot of ways to the South African government because, you know, one of them said, hey, you know, if we were surrounded by by a hostile black population, we would probably be the same way. And and so, you know, as you point out, you know, the U.S. even into the 60s was, was very much segregated. So it, it didn't have a lot for, for people um, to in the U.S. to look at that and go, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe they have a point. 
And the, and the biggest thing you have to remember about all of this was that this took place during the Cold War, where communism was his ever-present threat. At mm-hmm. least it was it was as his ever-present threat. So that's the other thing that the South African government was very good at doing is playing up the threat of communism and how the Soviet Union wouldn't have access to all of these strategic minerals that uh, that South Africa possessed. Well, you see what, what's interesting here. You, you speak about, you know, besides the mission and the plan, uh, you also speak about individuals that South Africa used, and some of them were obviously black individuals uh, that were, that came to the country. How, how and, and of course, there could have been sporting tournaments. How important and how effective were they in doing just that? You, you mean uh, the black individuals that were? Well, well yes, using using them to mm-hmm. inadvertently act as ambassadors, uh, giving giving a softer face to, to apartheid South Africa? Yeah, I, you know, that's, I think that is the toughest, toughest part of it, because I, I think that having these people, uh, particularly someone like Max Jurgen, who had fought against uh, the South African government to later become a proponent of it, I, I don't think it was that effective in terms of of convincing other uh, black Americans that, oh, okay, well, this is a great thing. Uh, I think in, in the conservative circles, you know, conservative whites, uh, that it, it only reinforced what they believed about South Africa overall. Now a lot of the you know the, the blacks who, who who did this. I mean, they weren't like an overwhelming number. They were just a few, but they were conservatives, and so they just believed this thing uh, about the Soviet Union trying to take over South South Africa. Now there were some groups that were actually hired by or created by uh, global corporations uh, that created this this black group that was more liberal and it, it it confused people I think. Um and and so that made it a little bit easier for apartheid to to exist a little bit longer by creating confusion. It wasn't so much that people that blacks in this country believed it, but that, well, you know, this person is saying it and, you know, I I I, I kinda respect them so Maybe there is something to it. So I think it created more of a sense of confusion than, than it did in, in outright uh, people buying into the idea that apartheid was a good thing. Okay, I'm very keen on to... Media at SAFM with Ashraf Garda. Exploring every media platform and industry. Only on 104 to 107. Well, Sabir Jasper saying selling apartheid during the Cold War was easy, like selling Israeli apartheid today. It's called uh, consumer mesmerization. Would, would that be the case? Because consumer mesmerization, that means you, you, you create a, a whole lot of scenarios, smoke screen, people can't understand it, and you make it very, very palatable one. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's a, that's a good way of, of describing it. Uh, and that's really what happened with the, with the apartheid government. Um, you know, in, 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 in addition to sort of direct branding, they also created sort of misdirection. So there were things that were they created but weren't 
directly connected to them. So it seemed like you had people with no connection to them supporting their their ideology. So, yeah, I, 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 would, I would say that that is an apt description. Okay, I'm going to get to some calls. In, um, in fact, we'll do it right now. Make one specific comment, please, short and sharp, would be appreciated. Pat, go ahead. Hi. Hello. Yes. I want to find out what uh, the, the second book would be like. Like when, when you sell the post of Party South Africa, I mean, the EFF went to London to go and talk about uh, the new South Africa and what role they are playing. And it was much like uh, they were talking about Nelson Mandela and stuff. So what would be the, 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 the metaphors that should be used in selling a post-apartheid South Africa as opposed to an apartheid society? Okay, interesting one. We'll get an answer. Maybe the other one is if it was sold and how was apartheid bought by, by others. Uh, we'll make a note of that one. David, uh, go ahead, David. Hi. Yes, good morning. Can your uh, 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 expert there tell us whether he believes that apartheid was a purely a black-white uh, uh, racialist conflict or was it... Uh, in common with his hero, Karl Marx, uh, inspired by uh, economics, economics, sorry, um, look at uh, Europe and, and see what is happening there. Isn't that apartheid? You've got... No, no, okay, okay, just, just hear me out. I made that clear from the beginning. We're not people discussing People from context. rich countries, and, uh, and they're invaded right, by but, people but from poor countries. David, David. What da action are they taking? David, thank you. I, I made it very clear. We're not discussing concepts. We're looking at the marketing aspect of it all. So I hear what you're saying, but we're looking at just marketing propaganda of an ideology and, and how that worked. Um, we'll get to SIG in... In fact, let's get to SIG now. SIG, go ahead. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much, Ashraf. I, I, I had to leave the SABC uh, in the 60s, in the, in the late 60s, because it was a propaganda medium for apartheid. And, and uh, I, I refused to take a citizen's job later, citizen being uh, the outfit that was going to replace the Ron Daily Mail mm -hmm. as an honest journalism thing. They were going to propagandize the nation with the citizen, and I refused to take a job there. But I do believe that uh, uh, the, the, thing, the real issue at the time was communism, which was a massive Cold War, and it was very hot in South Africa. They wanted to really make a, a, a revolution happen in here uh, and, and really kill people on, on a mass scale. And bombs went off and stuff happened. And, and, All and right, but now, now, we're moving slightly, now we're moving slightly away, and again, I've said that if you wish to comment on, on the selling and the marketing then I'm fine to talk that about was, that. Too. That was people will swallow anything if they don't know what it's about. Okay. Uh, the marketing was based on 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 a, on a very nice concept of separate development, which was going to, should have been free and fair, but it wasn't. And the lie was that it was free and fair, uh, and that it would have replaced communism, which mm. was the alternative. All right. Good good point. Separate but equal enough. You used the word nice. I hope it was an inverted commas thing, because I think otherwise it could be something different from what you said. Got that point. Ron, you know, th th it's an interesting point. The fact that communism at that time was the big threat, not just to, to what would be seen as a part of South Africa, but certainly to the Western world. Uh, and because of, uh, of South Africa's uh, parties, a uh, movement that opposed uh, apartheid, clearly were aligned to uh, many parts of the Eastern Bloc and, 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 and communist countries. Did that make it easier to even uh, paint people like the ANC and the PAC and many others as, uh, as, as part of this 
communist threat and therefore not to be dealt with, which actually then made it easier to deal and work with apartheid. Yeah, I think that that was a major component of the South African government's, uh, you know, the apartheid South African government propaganda efforts, and they played this up repeatedly. The the thing is that, particularly in the U.S., you know, when you look at some of the the, the memos, they didn't think the communist threat was as strong as as the South African government was making it out. But South Africa was a was an ally, so. You know, they continued to support them, but it, it seems that they knew that, you know, the Soviet Union really didn't have any, 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 in actually trying to take over South Africa, but that did play a major role in the government selling its effort abroad. Okay, well, whichever way it was, it was, it was a very, important bogeyman to use and it certainly worked. What I'm interested therefore then, Ron, is in your book, and I'm not, you know, obviously people need to buy the book, but, but what was the fight back then? What was the fight back from the uh, anti-apartheid movement uh, and many other organizations that were hell-bent against apartheid? So when you had apartheid being marketed as an acceptable lifestyle, what was the opposition against it and did it work? Well, the, the opposition, you know, did some of the same things, uh, not in terms of, of creating, uh, you know, fake organizations, but in terms of trying to educate the foreign media, trying to educate foreign foreign audiences about what the anti-apartheid movement was about. They hired, the, you know, similar firms and, and had similar representatives and, and the, the major European countries. They just didn't have the resources to to carry it out. You know, they also built allies and alliances with other organizations like those in the U.S., like you know the the anti the Free South Africa movement led by Trans Africa here in the U.S. Um, you know, you had the anti-apartheid movement in in London. Uh, you had similar movements and all over the world. So the anti-apartheid folks. You know, try to make their alliances. They try to do their own um, media campaigns. They just didn't have the resources to do it. Hmm. What okay. to, to the degree that that the South African government had the resources? Is it is it fair? We're going to wrap up now. Is it fair to say that the tide turned uh, because of the strength, ultimately, of the anti-apartheid movement uh, of you know? Uh, freeing Nelson Mandela, and it, and it took on global prominence when more and more people around the world, London in particular, I think was very much a, a headquarters for that, uh, it gained so much currency that at that stage, even this, this idea of a, a separate but equal apartheid South Africa was just not working. Yes, I mean, you know, and that's one of the things that uh, on the back of the, the book, a congresswoman uh, who was uh, the U.S. Congresswoman who was active in the anti-apartheid movement said that you know this shows how you know just regular people overcame the financial resources that the South African government had because you know as more and more uh, was known about what was happening in South Africa as there was more of an attempt to you know make Nelson Mandela this global icon of of for the oppressed. And also, you know, as the rest of the world started to change, you know, South Africa didn't, uh, in terms of, of its segregation and, and, um, and keeping blacks in certain, 
uh, in keeping blacks in, in the conditions that they had been in for years, the rest of the world started to change. You know, you had civil rights struggles here in the U.S., and that, uh, you know, played a prominent role in getting more black Americans into the government, into uh, roles as members of Congress, and they then started to push the U.S. government to change its policies. So that's what helped turn the, the, the tide, you know, those allies, that folks like the ANC um, had built up over mm-hmm. the years. You know, the ANC's ties with a, a lot of black Americans go back to... Mm-hmm. All right, the, the last thing, Ron, is this, that in terms of your research for the book, right, did you discover anything uh, that absolutely jumped off the page, something really surprising? I think the fact that there were black Americans who, who lobbied for the South African government was, was, it was shocking for me, you know, as a black American and as being told, uh, and, and, you know, sort of going to, to college, uh, in college toward, in the early and late 80s, uh, and, and, you know, you, you're sort of caught up in the moment and you don't realize uh, what's happening because, you know, I, I witnessed the, the Free South African movement, the anti-apartheid movement, both on my, on my campus and, and, you know, regularly on TV. And so it was a, a largely a black-led movement here in the U.S. So the idea that there were black people who, you know, actually okay. were paid by the South African government, that was a little shocking. All right, that's where we can leave it, Ron Nixon. I presume this book can be bought just about anywhere in South Africa. Ron Nixon, Washington correspondent at the New York Times and author of Selling Apartheid. Get it? I think it's, it's, it's a must-read. It's a very interesting book indeed, and it'll certainly get you thinking about it from a pure marketing and propaganda aspect of how apartheid was uh, popularized as an acceptable concept around the world. What about financial services, that sort of dry, dull sector maybe that we all have to deal with because all our money is with them in some way or the other? Well, Tepa Mateba is my guest next up to talk about how that sector communicates right after this.